Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. When it comes to the battle between Russia and Ukraine, has Israel remained neutral? And if so, how is that possible? That is the question many are asking, as Israeli leaders are quoted as seeming to equivocate when it comes to denouncing Russia's invasion. Some reports blame Israel for shielding Russian billionaires from sanctions while not imposing any of their own. Others accuse Israel of denying Ukraine the same defense technology that protects Israeli civilians from unprovoked attacks. Here to set the record straight on Israel's support for Ukraine and to explain why the Jewish state must tread carefully when it discusses these matters is Lahav Harkov, senior contributing editor and diplomatic correspondent for the Jerusalem Post and co-host of the Post's weekly podcast. Lahav, you've been with us before. Welcome back to People of the Pod. Thanks for having me on the show. So we have a situation here where... Even historically neutral countries have denounced Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Switzerland, Sweden, Finland. Has Israel taken their place? Is the term Israeli neutrality true? Absolutely not. I mean, within a few days of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Israel's foreign minister condemned the invasion of Ukraine and condemned Russia for it. I think that there's a misconception for a couple of reasons. First of all, uh, Prime Minister Naftali Bennett has spoken out in support of Ukraine, but not specifically condemned Russia. So there's a little bit of a double game going on with the officials where you have the foreign minister speaking more harshly than the prime minister. And also there's this expectation, which frankly doesn't make a lot of sense when you really get down to it, but there's an expectation from a lot of people in the West that Israel would just behave exactly the same way as the US and the EU would. And it doesn't make sense because the circumstances are so different in so many ways. I mean, the U.S. being a superpower, the EU being much more powerful than Israel, having a lot more money than Israel, you know, even in that very basic way. But also, you know, Israel has a lot of reasons to be cautious when it comes to Russia. You know, we have Russia right on our northern border with Syria, which is to some extent America's fault because America didn't stick to its red lines in Syria back in 2013. But in any case, it's now 2022 and Russia has been there for about seven years. And the other major military force in Syria is Iran, the country that is bent on Israel's annihilation. And so Israel fairly regularly strikes at Iranian targets at Syria. It doesn't want Iran to get too entrenched near Israel's borders, and it doesn't want Iran transferring weapons to Hezbollah, the Lebanese terrorist group, which now dominates the Lebanese government as well, that is also bent on Israel's destruction, like their Iranian patrons. When Israel strikes in Syria, it has to coordinate with Russia. So Russia makes sure that its troops aren't killed and that its you know equipment isn't damaged, etc. Because Israel doesn't want to get into a confrontation with Russia, that would be you know, very difficult, perhaps less difficult than people thought, because the Russian army, it turns out, is not as strong as people thought. But it would still be very problematic. You know, we have enough enemies. We have enough problems on our borders. We don't need to get into a fight with Russia now as well. So the big issue for Israel right now, the big reason that Israel can't sort of full-throatedly, you know, go along with everything the West is doing is because of this military issue. And then in addition to that, 
you know, there are hundreds of thousands of Jews in Russia and Ukraine. In Ukraine, the estimates range from 50,000 to 200,000, but in Russia, there are far more Jews. And Israel has a responsibility to Jews all over the world and to their safety and to, at the very least, keep those channels open. I think that that is a lesser concern, not because Jews are less important, but because the chain of events is sort of like a less direct, I think, if Israel's in a bad situation with Russia. Like, I don't, but um, it is a concern that. Lapid, the foreign minister, mentions often that, you know, Israel wants to make sure that the Jews of Russia are safe. And we do see a sort of iron curtain descending on Russia right now. So specifically the criticism that flights from Russia have continued, Israel's like, well, we're not going to stop those flights because we want to let those Jews come to Israel if they want. So we've talked about just the awkward position that Israel is in, but also some believe that Prime Minister Naftali Bennett is in a position to mediate this conflict. What is the likelihood of that, and why would he be an appropriate mediator? So the idea for Bennett or just any Israeli leader to mediate was actually Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's idea. He started asking, it was then Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in February 2021, and Netanyahu offered it to Putin directly once and then to top officials you know, in Putin's office another time, and both times Netanyahu was rejected. Bennett met with Putin for the first time in October— Bennett being the new prime minister, and Putin rejected it. And reportedly, I've not been able to confirm this, but it was reported in the Israeli media that Putin called Zelensky a Nazi. So Bennett said, all right, this is you know not going to happen. And frankly, when it leaked to the press before the war, but a few weeks after that trip in October, his office really like they didn't want to talk about it at all. They thought it was a total non-starter. But once the war started, once Russia invaded Ukraine, the Ukrainians again asked Bennett for his help. And Bennett said, well, you know, if if I can do it, if I can save lives, I'll do it. And Putin was more willing. And so Bennett has been sort of going back and forth, multiple phone calls with Putin and with Zelensky every week of this war. He also flew out to Moscow to speak with Putin. And I can say from my sources in Bennett's office that he is willing to fly to Kiev and that his security is preparing a security plan for that trip. If it happens, it's not scheduled yet. You know, I don't know what the chances are of him being the one who's bringing, you know, peace here. It's a very tricky game. I think it's risky for him and his reputation and the relations with the two countries as well. You know, even Ukraine, we've heard some voices of them not being happy, saying he's not pushing Putin enough. But, you know, he's trying. He sees it as something he could do to save a life or save many lives. In fact, he flew to Moscow on Shabbat. Right. Uh, That was one of the first trips or attempts to speak with Putin. And did that alone, just the timing of his trip alone, send a message about where he might stand on this conflict? Yeah, yeah, it did. And, you know, Ukraine's ambassador to Israel really noted it when he had a press conference soon after that he saw that Bennett is taking it seriously and he knows how important it is because he was willing to violate Shabbat, which you can really only do in a, a situation of life and death. Zelensky called on Israel to make Iron Dome available to Ukraine. And as we know, Iron Dome has saved thousands of lives on both sides, also Israeli and Arab lives, by averting more than 90 percent of the attacks on Israeli civilians. A similar system that protects Ukraine could save thousands of Ukrainian lives and, frankly, Russian lives. I mean, it should be noted that thousands of Russian soldiers are losing their lives in this war game. So why not provide Iron Dome? 
So two things. Number one, he didn't use the words Iron Dome, but he did say, you know, your missile system, your missile defense system. And so we think that that's the implication, perhaps. The Iron Dome, what you're saying is that it could save thousands of Ukrainians. It's really unclear if that's true. Because the Iron Dome was made to defend Israelis against the sort of crude projectiles that Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad launch into Israel. They're sort of crude rockets and drones. Whereas Russia uses ballistic missiles and just much more advanced missiles that, you know, have actual targets as opposed to the ones that Hamas shoot in the random direction of Israeli cities. And, you know, they're much more powerful And so, first of all, in that way, the Iron Dome would not stop much and it would probably be destroyed pretty easily. In addition, Israel has 10 to a dozen Iron Domes, barely enough to cover Israel, and they do get moved around during wartime to places where, you know, the army think need more protection. And Ukraine is something like 27 times bigger than Israel in terms of territory. So it would just really not help very much in terms of the territory it would cover. And also, you know, Israel has trouble funding the Iron Dome. Israel doesn't fund the Iron Dome on its own, right? Like the U.S. Congress just approved a billion dollars to replenish the stores of the Iron Dome batteries because Israel had to use so many of them in the war in May. Um, And replenishing it took a long time. And there really were concerns in Israel of what would happen if that money didn't come in and they weren't restored. Which brings you to another sort of theoretical, but think that if Israel gave Iron Domes to Ukraine, would Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad not know about it and not take advantage of it and use that opportunity to shoot at Israelis? And on top of all of that, you have to be trained how to use them. They're very, very large and not easy to transport. So there's like a lot of technical reasons why the Iron Dome is not the right thing. So what is Israel doing? What kind of aid is Israel providing? We know that you know other countries are providing weaponry. You said earlier Israel is not. That would, again, further its awkward position. But what is Israel doing? So Israel is providing massive amounts of humanitarian aid. Several airplanes fall, um, you know, mostly for refugees, things, blankets, tents, and also all kinds of medicine. That was in the first round of 100 tons of humanitarian aid. And as of this week, Israel became the first foreign country to open a field hospital in Ukraine. And there's 60 doctors and nurses there. It has a pediatric ward, a maternity ward, an emergency room, x-rays, and a telemedicine ward where doctors in Israel can, you know, online using video systems examine or talk to patients. So that really opened this week. And and there's pictures already of, you know, patients there, you know, pediatricians working with children, really sad photos, but good that Israel's helping. Does it have agreements with Russia that those field hospitals are safe? Well, I know that Israel has talked to Russia or updated Russia that Israel's building the field hospital. That is a good question. I'm not sure what commitments Russia made in terms of the hospital. But, you know, also I should add another thing that Israel has been doing is that it has helped thousands of people leave Ukraine, Jews and Israelis, but also Israel, it took a little time and there was some public debate, but at the moment, our policy on refugees that do not qualify to immigrate to Israel for being Jews or the descendants of Jews, if they are related to someone in Israel or have a close friend in Israel and have somewhere to stay in Israel, then those refugees can come. So it's not like as generous a package as, say, the EU or the countries that are bordering on Ukraine. 
But Israel is basically letting in the refugees that want to come to Israel. I do want to go back to the field hospitals, though, just the topic of life in general, the lives that are impacted by this. The lives of the Russian people have been severely impacted by the harsh sanctions that are being imposed on Russia. Israel has not imposed harsh sanctions. And in fact, it has, again, been blamed for providing a haven for Russian billionaires to get away from those sanctions. Is there any truth to that? And is there any explanation as to why not sanctions? There's no evidence that Israel is actually being used as a haven by these billionaires of money being transferred into Israel. There might have been some money already there because a few of these oligarchs have Israeli citizenship and they do have property. Some of them have property in Israel, like Roman Abramovich, but just various oligarchs have flown their private jets into Israel and have had to leave a day or two later because Israel has said, you know, we're not going to be the parking lot of the private jets of these sanctioned oligarchs. There's not a lot more I can really say on that topic because the government's being very secretive about what it's doing. Basically, there's no law on the books that allows Israel to have put sanctions of the kind that the U.S. and the U.K. and the EU have put on these oligarchs. Like the law doesn't exist and it would probably take months because it would be controversial. I'm sure that it wouldn't be something that the Knesset could pass easily, aside from the fact that it's on recess, but that's an excuse that can be gotten around. But it would take a very long time. So because this is an urgent issue, there's a committee of the sort of legal teams in the foreign ministry and the justice ministry and the finance ministry. And they're taking things like on a case by case basis to look at what they can do in order not to become a haven for these oligarchs. And so the one thing that I have gotten sort of authorized, so that's public at this point, is that they're not letting them park their planes here long term. Frankly, I've been trying very hard as a journalist to investigate and to try to figure out what else it means, what else they're doing on a case-by-case basis, and I don't have that answer yet. There is so much misinformation out there, falsehoods fueled by simply a lack of knowledge. What else should listeners know to keep what they hear in proper perspective, in proper context? I mean, I just think people keep saying Israel is neutral, right? And it's just not true. Israel's not neutral. Israel is doing what it can within the restrictions of its difficult situation by being on Russia's border. And a response that I often get from people is, well, the Baltic states have Russia on their border, but don't forget the Baltic states are in NATO and Israel is not. And if there's anything that this Ukraine war has really driven home for Israelis, and I think a lot of other American allies, is that if you're not in NATO and someone starts a war against you, America's not going to fight that war for you. So Israel needs to be careful. I mean, not that Israel's ever asked America to fight a war for us. Israel's asked America for arms and for money and not for soldiers. But there's definitely a strong feeling in Israel that this just proves that we have to be able to look out for our own security. Thank you so much, Lahav. I really appreciate you explaining these very complicated issues to our listeners. Thank you. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And with me this week is AJC Jerusalem Director Avital Leibovich. Avital, you were at Ben Gurion Airport last week to welcome Ukrainian refugees. The Jewish Agency for Israel received a grant from AJC to fly a plane load of Ukrainian Jewish refugees from Poland to Israel. Can you tell us what that was like to usher families into their new home? We were five from the AJC Jerusalem office. We prepared in advance signs which welcomed the Ukrainian refugees into Israel. We prepared little packets with chocolates for the kids because we knew 
that there are going to be a lot of families on the flight. We waved little Israeli flags, you know, trying to give them a sense of welcome to their new home. And there were a few things that were quite interesting. The first thing was that there were no men. I mean, there were hardly any men. There were some elderly men, obviously, but since the men had to stay behind in Ukraine and fight, there were mainly mothers with their children. And the second thing that surprised us was You know that when you disembark from an aircraft, usually there's a lot of hustle and bustle and noise and people are laughing and, you know, glad that the flight is over. We didn't experience it here. It was very quiet, although there were a lot of kids on the flight. So that was quite a shock, you know, to see. And you can really tell by the look on their faces that they have been through some kind of a trauma. The faces, the expressions on the faces do not, cannot hide the fact that they have been traumatized. And it was quite, quite moving for us to see them. And we hugged even a few of them. It was really a remarkable experience for us. That must have been, goodness, I'm brought to tears. That must have been amazing to hug and embrace those families and welcome them to their new home. Usually you have carry-ons, you have duty-free bags, you know, the whole package. But they were carrying mainly like plastic bags, which is a very strong indication of something temporary because that's what they had. Did you get a sense that they anticipated their stay in Israel would be temporary? Or did they anticipate this being their new home? So we understand here in Israel that those who choose to come here have many other choices because geographically speaking, Poland and Romania and Moldova and even Germany are closer than Israel. Obviously, when you have to buy a ticket and go through all this trouble and so on. So those who come here probably have some contacts here, whether it's friends or family members or both. And that's the reason they chose. I mean, from my perspective, I'm very happy that Israel is able to give them a home and protect them from the atrocities they witnessed. And they'll carry this trauma, I'm sure, for the rest of their lives. Whether later they will to return to their country or not, that's really their own choice. But here, I know that they will receive a full envelope of an immigration basket, which will include housing, food, medical insurance, of course, education for the kids. And when the weeks and months go by, then there are other components to this, such as helping find jobs and so on. How do you comfort or advise newcomers, such as these Ukrainian refugees, such as those Russian refugees when they came? How do you comfort or advise them about kind of leaving their homes, their old culture behind and adjusting to a new one? Yeah, it's a great question. And the answer is really with the DNA of the Israelis today. And I mean to say by that, that one out of every four Israelis was not born here. And we're in 2022, which means that Israel actually invested a lot of efforts and resources in building what we call absorption centers. And these are houses, apartments, facilities which have classrooms in which there is really, you take the immigrants hand by hand and you walk them through, starting from the Israeli bureaucracy, because unfortunately we have bureaucracy, 
going through even professions that need to make an adaptation to the Israeli professions. Because, you know, if you're a lawyer somewhere else, it doesn't mean that everything you studied applies to the country. So, you know, just completing these gaps and explaining to them really what is the country all about. This is a process that takes up to a year. It also includes learning the Hebrew language, which is also something critical in, you know, absorbing immigrants in the best possible way. Israel makes all of these accommodations and offers all of these things to help a family start a new life. What do Jewish teachings offer here? Because these are Ukrainian Jewish refugees, right, who are being absorbed in the Jewish homeland. What do Jewish teachings offer in the way of guidance? So those Ukrainians who come here and had some background in Jewish schools, because we know there are Jewish schools in in Ukraine, already come with this Jewishness kind of absorbed in them. But here in Israel, I think that part of the integration is really to make an adaptation to what it means to live in a Jewish state. And it means, for example, that Friday at around 2 p.m., there is some kind of a slow pace which controls the entire country, basically toning down the rhythm of the traffic, of people outside their homes, and going slowly into Shabbat. So that is something that if you live abroad, you don't feel it. And of course, there is the issue of the holiday, the different Jewish holidays, which here, you know, when you go to a Passover meal, then the entire country is in the cars, waiting, wearing white shirts and going to meals in their families as well. So there is a certain kind of atmosphere specific and unique to Israel, unlike anywhere else where Jewish communities live. And this is something that can be taught, of course, but I think moreover will be really felt and experienced by these newcomers. Well, that alone seems comforting. So thank you so much, Avital. I appreciate you taking the time to share this with us. And speaking of Shabbat, Shabbat Shalom. Thank you and Shabbat Shalom to everyone. If you missed last week's episode, be sure to tune in for my heart-rending conversation with AJC Central Europe colleague Aldona Zavada as she takes us behind the scenes of AJC's humanitarian mission to the Ukraine-Poland border and shares extraordinary stories of the Polish community's courage and warm embrace of their Ukrainian neighbors. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, And hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.